Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Hello and on today's episode of the Afternoon Light podcast, I am talking to Dr. Andrew Carr, who is a senior lecturer in the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian National University. And his research there focuses on strategy, middle powers and Australian defence policy. But today, Andrew, we're not talking about that type of stuff, are we? We're talking about an article you wrote nine years ago, Civic Republicanism and Menzies, the non-liberal side of the liberal leader. So welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you very much for having me. So, Andrew, this is a vexed question. Was Menzies a liberal or conservative? It's tossed around, has been tossed around for decades, and I feel like each liberal leader both at a federal and various state levels, seems to claim an inheritance from Menzies that suits their particular ideological bent or outlook. Some say he was a progressive, some say he was a conservative inheritor of Edmund Burke. Is he John Stuart Mill? The quote that's often used is is around the name liberal. And Menzies said, we took the name liberal because we were determined to be a progressive party willing to make experiments, in no sense reactionary, but believing in the individual, his rights, his enterprise, and rejecting the socialist panacea. So, as I said, liberal leaders have grabbed bits and pieces from that quote, among others, particularly the Forgotten People speech, and have chosen, really, it's choose your own adventure with Menzies. But you have a particular view on Menzies uh, as a civic Republican. So I'd love to hear the basic thesis, and then we'll drill down. Sure. No, look, thanks for the chance to have a chat about Menzies. And I think he is a fascinating figure in terms of political philosophy. You know, how do we categorise and, and think about our place in the world? Because there aren't Menzian liberals today. Um, and even the idea of that in some ways is seen as strange because he did move across the spectrum and he tried often to solve particular kinds of political problems and was willing to kind of say one thing and and do another if he thought that was the right way to get where his country and and party needed to be. And when I spent a bit of time really reading and and learning about him a decade ago, I thought, well, there's parts that clearly aren't liberal, there's parts that clearly aren't conservative, but there is a coherence to what he was trying to do. And for me, it was reading the work of Judith Brett and others that helped kind of really understand that I think actually he wasn't really a man of his time in terms of the 20th century when we look at these debates, but he read a lot earlier into the 16th and 17th century, and particularly that English and Scottish history. And if you look at the dominant ideas back then, it wasn't just liberal, it was republicanism. Um, and so when we went and assessed with my co-author, Benjamin Jones, how does Menzies approach key issues of government about the balance of power within a uh, democratic system, the role of public life and, and the role of, you know, civic virtue, duties and responsibilities, there's clearly a different view, and that is, we thought, civic republicanism. So I don't know if um, people would be terribly familiar with civic republicanism as a concept, and, and certainly in the context of Australia, when you hear the word republicanism, you assume that someone wants to get rid of the Queen and that comes with it 
an enormous amount of baggage. Now, I think Amanda Vanstone in 1999, in the throes of the Republican debate in the lead up to the referendum, she claimed that Menzies, if he had been alive then and had been an advocate for either side, would have been on the yes side and, and advocating for a republic in Australia, which took a lot of people by surprise that she would make that claim because, of course, Menzies has a reputation as a, an Anglophile and you write, you know, he was a strong supporter of a constitutional monarchy. So so could you just give me a, a, a quick definition of civic republicanism as, as opposed to separatist republicanism? Thank you. Yeah, and it was one of the fun parts of writing this article is that, you know, we got to be a little bit cheeky and say, oh, Menzies was a republican, <laughs> um, which as you... In the Australian context, is very much about not having the Queen in um, part of our system of government. But it's a much older political philosophy. You know, the term itself is Latin, res publica, of the public, the people. And Aristotle, Cicero, Machiavelli are all figures who at times have really embraced and and promoted republican ideals. And, And it's just way of thinking about government and the citizens particularly and their responsibilities to each other. So it's often focused on having a balance of power between the elites and the mob uh, or between the kind of legislative and the executive uh, in more current terms. It's an approach that very much values the idea of freedom but sees it as slightly different from a liberal. So instead of kind of freedom from interference, it's freedom from domination and, you know, in that Isaiah Berlin style of a positive liberty. So you actually have to be enabled to be able to be free. You have to have a enough social standing, a welfare support and other foundations of the society such that you can thrive within that element. And not just that the state kind of helps set you up and then leaves you alone, but that you then have responsibilities to the state. You have duties. And so, you know, a classic example would be something like compulsory voting. You know, that's not a liberal idea in terms of kind of the state just leaving you to do it. But it actually says, no, no, you have a responsibility to turn up and participate in our society and supporting our democracy. And I think that has kind of followed through from it. And there's this nice quote from Menzies in his Forgotten People um, broadcast. He says, the great question is, how can I qualify my son to help society? And not, as we have so frequently thought, how can I qualify society to help my son? So you, you see where the emphasis is, is actually about contributing uh, to something bigger than yourself. Yes, and you do rightly point out in your article that he he predates JFK by about 20 years um, with those words and that sentiment, whereas uh, JFK is more, more commonly quoted for, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Uh, so it's good that Menzies is getting a bit of a revival and uh, a bit of credit for, for his wise words. So He tell- should be read more often. Um, and I, I think there is a I, – I really enjoyed taking the time to just learn, learn more of it and read his words uh, in depth because I don't think – People do that anymore. And he's a fascinating figure in that sense. Oh, extraordinary figure. And someone who had a dedication to thinking and ideas and reading, a lifelong learner, and he developed those ideas over decades. Tell me, Andrew, you write about Australian liberalism, which is a particular form of liberalism, very distinct from British and and American. Can you Talk about what it is that makes Australian liberalism Australian. Yeah, thank you. So liberalism is often kind of seen as the dominant way that Western societies are organised. 
you know, even today we talk about, you know, the rise of China and the threat to the liberal order, assuming that the West only has one particular approach. And when we kind of actually drill down into how people see it, there was a lot of diversity. In the Australian system, there often hasn't been very strong um, kind of doctrinaire, broad, clear philosophical treatises and things like that, but a willingness to take and adapt those ideas uh, to the particular context. And so Australia sometimes is seen as a place without a lot of philosophy, but I think if you understand how they were trying to use it to solve the political problems of their day, it can have its own coherence and relevance. And so we saw it as quite an adaptive and valuable philosophy as far as, um, you know, the Deaconite history and, and that role of free trade and, and particularly those strains of thought. And Menzies often talked towards that, but he also had his own distances from it and seemed to validate and justify why he was more interventionist at times, why he saw uh, the importance of the state having these larger roles. And, and particularly, I think, as well, in his own approach uh, to public life. He wasn't someone who just wanted to get in, put forward a few ideas and then get out. He actually saw himself as being called to public life. And I, I see that as an important part of his own political philosophy. Mm, mm. Um, you you write about um, Australian liberalism being very pragmatic. And I guess part of our natural environment, geography, and that sort of tyranny of distance necessitated pragmatism over ideology. And our founding story, and I've talked about this on, on previous podcasts as well, our founding story influences our liberalism too, I think. We, we you know we weren't um, founded through a civil war or a revolution, an uprising. It was a, it was a you know, a colony. I mean, there's obviously diversity of interpretations around the, the Australian settlement versus invasion, but um, for white settlement, it was a colony and, and evolved from the Westminster system. And and then obviously there were our own colonial debates around our constitution and how it should be drafted, but they're, they're, all, they're all kind of related to a, a pragmatism that isn't necessarily part of the British story or the American story. And then our relationship to the state, I think, is much more benign than, say, the American relationship to the state where, that you know, it's, it's, it's vexatious. <laughs> you know, they really, they're very sceptical of the state, the role of the state, the intervention of the state in their lives, whereas we, we're a bit more accepting even, even if we want freedom from the state in parts of our lives, particularly our private lives, we're very comfortable with the state being involved in in the the public sphere. Yeah, very much so. And I think this is an underappreciated element of the Australian political psyche, that role of pragmatism in how we go about achieving what we need to from the world. A lot of former British colonies, um, you know, you take the Americans or the Indians, as soon as they became independent, they very quickly wanted to build large structures of their armed forces, their diplomatic corps, that way of showing, hey, look, we are now standing on our own as these principal countries. And the Australian approach is very different. And I, a lot of people say, oh, it's because we didn't realise we had our own interests, we were dependent. And, and I think that's wrong. I think we were actually very pragmatic and just went, well, we can gain all of the advantages of operating within this broader structure that we're comfortable with, so long as we're willing to kind of put some of those hard symbols of principle aside and be pragmatic about how to achieve what we want. And we're able to do so in a very cost-effective and, and often very kind of capable way. Um, so on the strategic and defence policy side, you know, I certainly have a, a big view of that. And, and I think another example you know, comes through with the way Menzies thought about 
some of the key institutions. He didn't just believe in the monarchy in the way that, say, some in Britain at the time, he was around believing the monarchy as has to be the foundation and has to be the order. Um, and this is part of our system of government. He very clearly recognizes that the monarchy by the 1950s has evolved and it's a very different kind of institution than it was at the start of the 20th century. Um, and he actually values that change. It's because, you know, as he says, you know, quote, the monarch is no longer the tyrant, but the symbol, mm. recognizing that the, the queen can't tell Australia what to do or how to shape its policies but it still has an important role in balancing some of the other parts of the system. And so it's that pragmatism of it's not a pure monarchy system. We're not kind of just in that allegiance. But, hey, in practice, this works, that he sees the value of it. Um, and because of those changes, because of that evolution, he was com- more comfortable with it, I believe. Yeah, I think that's really interesting that, and you write about this, that the Crown's absence of legal power is its strength. It depends on honour, love, respect, embodiment of national sentiment. Uh, and, and he, and you write about the, the way Menzies would, um, or Australia would select its, its Governor General. So, you know, obviously the Governor General is the Queen's or the monarch's representative in Australia, ostensibly appointed by by the Queen, but it's the Prime Minister who recommends, nominates a person to be made Governor-General. And, uh, and Menzies said that the, the monarch um, is, is given the recommendation and the expectation is, the convention is, that the monarch doesn't come back and say, no, no, I've got, got you know, it's Lord Joseph, not, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> your nominee. Uh, and that, so there's a lack of power but there's also that, that sense of, of respect and honour for the monarch. Very much so. And what I find fascinating with Menzies is, you know, he's a lawyer but he often doesn't seem to think like a lawyer. Um, you know, the, the lawyers, particularly when they get into public life, often want things to be neat and organised and, and clean and in that structure. And let's clearly lay out who's responsible and how that responsibility should flow through. And I think with Menzies, there's a recognition, well, life is messier than that. And we use traditions and habits and, and our culture to help shape what those should be. Um, so he's cautious about our relationship with the Americans because even after we have the ANZUS Alliance, he kind of says, well, our culture is different. You know, the mm. way that, that we engage and think about the world is different. And so we do have to keep looking back to those cultures and traditions that we are more comfortable with. And, and that limits his views in some ways in terms of his ability to engage on some issues. But I also think it's kind of to his strength in recognising that we have these systems of government to solve particular problems, to achieve certain things we want in the world, rather than necessarily as kind of pure representations of who we are to the world. Mm. Um, you know, government is a problem-solving thing, and I think that's where he saw it, its value coming through um, rather than being a philosophical treatise about what the right values for all time are, the right principles. You write about Menzies' first trip to to Britain and he goes to Westminster and he's um, talking about the people who would have walked and the footsteps he's walking in and, and he expresses quite a bit of admiration for, for Oliver Cromwell, which surprised me, but you make the point that he he sees he admires Cromwell for the for constraining the power of the monarch um, and that that is good for democracy and, and our constitutional monarchy. Um, can you can you talk about that? Do you think <laughs> some of his 
people who would spouse the Menzian tradition might be quite sort of taken aback that he was such an admirer of Cromwell and whether he would be considered more more a cavalier than a roundhead, <laughs> to use the terminology of the time. Yeah, no, look, it is a fascinating part of it. And the way I kind of square it is that I think he saw in public life this balance and this kind of evolution and this slow change and, and sometimes you know, quite upsetting or challenging events in our societies actually lead us to better situations. And and he was certainly someone who was very willing to have those hard debates because he thought the ultimate outcome might actually lead us to a better situation. And and so I think that sense of, well, this is how we've evolved and, and validating that. The other part of it, I, I think, is that he's seen as, you know, the last of the Queen's men, that very English in, in the kind of Australian context. But he often saw himself as much more Scottish. Um, you know, the, the Queen, I was reading Troy Bramston's biography recently, the Queen kind of kindly, but also had, had a bit of fun, you know, using the old Scottish pronunciation of, you know, Mingsies and kind of the way that um, the Scots would have pronounced his name. And, and I think he drew on that history as well and, and was very deeply read into it. Um, and so I could see himself standing slightly apart from perhaps the way that some of the more aristocratic uh, English would see themselves and, and their history and tradition. And I think it's in some of that earlier history that Republican ideals were really vibrant, you know, Cromwell, but also Milton and then later uh, Fox, who wanted to balance power between the monarchy and between the people and, and the kind of aristocrats and the elites and, and seeing that that was actually a necessary challenge of it, um, as well as some of those earlier Roman histories, you know, and the value and, and role of revolution in that time. Uh, certainly he would have been you know, very well versed into that. Do you see there being much overlap um, between the way Menzies conceived of the monarchy and, and the constraints on, on the monarch's power and the arguments that were played out during the referendum debate in, in 99 in favour of the constitutional monarchy? I mean, it's it would be fascinating to try and work out what would have been the Menzies broadcast on, on the Republic debate. <laughs> Yeah, well, I was almost kind of hoping to, to ask you about this. I mean, you know, he did see that as tied to the symbols and he was willing to evolve in line with his public perception. The Queen clearly doesn't play that role in our society anymore as it did in the 1950s. So if it is to be a progressive party in that sense, would he perhaps have said, OK, maybe we need to change, even if we still think we need symbols and we need tradition perhaps coming from other sources? Yeah, I think he would have been very committed to the system of government we have and very nervous about a a shift away to a presidential style system where, you know, how would the president be selected and if it was some sort of election, even an indirect election, how would our head of state then become a, a figure of partisanship, which would would take away that sense of admiration, love and respect and deference, but also constrained power lack of legal rights, basically, that you write about. So, no, I definitely don't think he would have been stuck in his ways that we can, you know, never change um, our system, but there are inherent benefits to the system of a constitutional monarchy that, that disassociate our head of state from petty partisanship of politics, which, you know, you can't you can't avoid as, as, as dignified a politician as he might have been. He was a partisan, of course. Yes, very much so, and I think love those debates and, I like that that argument. I mean, for me, my money has always been much more about, well, how does the system operate after we make these changes? 
Mm. Um, and that's where I kind of have concerns about, you know, some of where the Republican movement is going at the moment, as much as I'm very comfortable with the idea of, of severing that link, because I don't I don't think Australians see it as useful. And I don't think that it actually has that balancing role within our society today. I don't think our prime ministers make decisions based on the concern that the Queen might be involved in in choices or or that at times of crises you know, in the mid 1970s that that has actually shaped what we did and how our system worked. Um, so if it's not playing that role practically and symbolically, then I don't see the, the need for it. But I do think the broader point of, well, government is not just about the specific rules and individuals meeting or failing that. It's actually about a society and it's about our relationship to each other and how we motivate within that society. And that's, I think, something that he would probably be very concerned about where we are today. You know, yep. we don't clearly have these big narratives, these sense of inclusion, the sense of, you know, common purpose for some of these challenges that we probably really will need. And and that's an absence that I think we can draw on his history to, to kind of bring in philosophically as well as perhaps looking at some of the symbols or ideas he had as well. Yeah, so that that brings me to the the concept of that civic duty that's that's very key to your um, civic republicanism um, and that that pervades Menzies' writing and speeches. He was focused on the individual, but the what? But the individual as someone who must give back, must contribute to society, who was not there, and you know he 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 pushed back against a person who would just just be in it for themselves and actually eschewed total laissez-faire um, government, it, you know, it was all about the, the individual being able to make the best of their own opportunities but for a broader common good. Where, how do you see that manifesting today? Is there is there still a, a sense that we, we act for the common good? I, I feel like the that sort of uber-individualistic society is still very much an American American trait and that we don't necessarily embrace that in Australia but but likewise we're, we're not a, a hugely communitarian society like some say our, some of our Asian neighbours would conceptualise themselves as. Yeah I think that's one of the, the more fascinating discussions that kind of come from this and, and I'd split it in two ways I think there's the question of who should contribute to public life the elites the people who are capable and, and willing to do so and then the responsibilities of the broader public as well. And I think those are two quite different elements. Um, you know, and I find it, there's this great quote I love from, you know, when he's a very successful uh, young man as a, a barrister and hearing before the high court at early age. And it's very clear he's on this high track to, to success and fame. And, and he tells his you know, would-be biographer that he says, well, you know, here you are practicing your profession, earning lots of money, but isn't it a rather narrow sort of existence? You know, even says like, quote, you know, isn't it about time you cut this out and did a certain amount of public work? And and I, I think there's a sense of he knows that he has the talents. And because of that very reason, he should actually contribute to public life. There's that responsibility as as clearly someone who's now in the elite of his society to have that responsibility and, and to contribute and give back uh, rather than just say, well, I'm elite and I can you know, I've clearly able to make my own um, way in life and, and do well that because of his talents, he had that responsibility to contribute. And I think that's an important part. When you look at our you know, federal parliament today, 
there are a lot of Australians who look at it who are very capable and talented and say, you know, why would I want to be involved in that? You know, the, mm. the hassle, the challenge, the small pay, um, the you know, criticisms of public life um, and say, you know, well, what's what's in it for me? And I think he would have said, well, it's precisely because you're capable that you, you have that duty and that responsibility. Um, but that's a separate question, I guess, from, you know, the larger public as well. And for there, it's, you know, how does the education system help set them up to also contribute to the society? So different groups having different responsibilities, kind of very much fitting that Republican ideals. So his views, and education is a good good point to um, pause on, his views on education and his passion for education are, um, are, you know, really impressive and I think worthy of further research and discussion. Um, the reforms he he uh, pushed through to our higher education system you know, led to a tripling of tertiary students in Australia through his government, almost 17 years in government, the second time around. Um, we got eight new universities during that period. Federal government funding was um, massively increased to universities. So you know, he wanted an educated country. He he thought that a successful nation was an educated nation. But how do how do his views on on education marry with your your thesis that he's a, a civic republican? Thank you. And I, for me, this was one that helped really clarify that this is where he sat. You know, the liberal might say, well, we'll have a um, you know classical liberal. We'll have an education system because it'll enable citizens to live their lives and, and find an income and, and choose their own path as they can go. And so we might yeah. set them up. We might really charge them for it because they're getting all of the advantage. And our current debate is often about we need to expand education because people need to go and get a good job. Uh, and we need to encourage them to take certain kinds of courses because that's where the jobs are and our society needs that economic contribution. And Menzies explicitly rejects that. You know, yeah. He says it's not about economic gain but it's to help society and that particularly those who are able to go to university. And it was very much a thing largely for the elites. Start of his term, as you say, that starts to change through scholarships and others, but it's still a small part of the population compared to today. You know, he says, when you go to university, you now have like the honor of training for the recognition of values that are other than pecuniary. Um, so it's about that larger contribution that different parts of society are able to make. And I, I think he sees this in, in two ways. There's the functional part of, as a citizen, you have responsibilities and education is partly how we enable you to contribute to the democracy. And so that's why scholarships and expanding the university system is, is valuable in that sense. But I think he also saw it in a moral sense as well, that education is the way that we challenge cynicism and civic corruption and the lack of virtue and all the things that he really hated about the communists because they were seen to challenge that democratic, open, transparent, courageous approach in, in his eyes. And for that reason, he saw them as this great moral threat to society and saw education and building a citizenry as part of our firmament to protect ourselves against that. So it's interesting reflecting on Menzies' successes over the decades, um, how the Liberal Party, his Liberal Party, has come to be associated with cutting funding to tertiary institutions and, of course, in the last iteration of the, the Liberal government made 
it more expensive to do a humanities degree and so less less achievable to do a humanities degree than it might be to do something that would otherwise get you a a job that really went against his his legacy of an education for a public good rather than for some sort of vocational outcome yeah it's a it's an unfortunate position and, and certainly you know, watching the way that COVID ravaged our university sector um, I have great fears that we've lost, you know, half a generation of academics through that, that the young up-and-comers just, there weren't the jobs and there wasn't the support for them. I do think there's some interesting questions today about how universities do contribute to a democratic society, that we don't require students to do courses on our history, our system of politics, mm. in areas that we think would be of value to the citizen public, you know, things like learning Bahasa Indonesia, you know, it's a tiny percent of the Australian population who who does that. And I think those are kind of where the conversations would be and where the university sector contributes to the nation. I, I'm an academic, it's my kind of job and, and my love is is through learning and things, but I, I do worry that our TAFE sector in particular has been so run down and seen as secondary by people on the left and right when that could be a very useful but short-term and quicker way of giving some of the trades and skills that people need and to be parts of um, their own professions, but also a little bit of an extra chance where we could start to say, well, you know, here's how our system of government operates and here's how you can contribute and some of the ideas about, you know, your responsibilities as well and and making decisions on these things and uh, being able to make those, those decisions. So, I'm hopeful that we might see a bit of a, a change about it, if only because the economic value of education is so important to how Australia's economy works these days. You have to see it as one of our core industries. Yeah, big business and, of course, a huge export earner for us, um, particularly pre-COVID and, and of course, um, pre the um, the downward trajectory of our relationship with, with China. Um, a, a question that is always raised about Menzies' the Liberal and his consistency in that approach um, is around his attempts in the early 50s to ban the Communist Party, uh, you know, often criticised uh, for this. Um, that was an illiberal thing to do, went against all his, all his pronouncements that he was in favour of, of free speech, plurality and, um, and the like. You know, banning a political party and not just banning it, trying to put it in the constitution that it was it was banned was a was overreach is the way the criticism go. But but how do you think as a civic republican, Menzies could have justified banning the Communist Party in in fifty one? Yeah, um, I think it is a great example of where he's clearly not a classical liberal in that sense that. You know, for the liberal, it's the principle of the state can't control the views of, of the population, um, can't interfere with that discussion, and, and that, that should be sacrosanct. Whereas I think the Republican tradition is much more pragmatic, and it's saying, well, what do we need for the health of the society? And sometimes you do get groups who are clearly antagonistic to part of that. And so I think in the Cold War context, he saw that as a necessary step. Certainly ASIO was very keen and supportive of uh, taking that step on security grounds. And I also think, and, and you know, Judith Brett has kind of written very nicely about this, that it also goes to the way that he viewed the communist ideology. It wasn't just a rival, but at a deep moral level, they seemed to challenge the idea of open democratic engagement between free citizens. 
And, and I think he really rejected that sense. And so it was a sense that no, not only do they have views that we think are dangerous or, or don't like, but the way that they act in public life is dangerous to um, the type of society that we're trying to build. And, and I think in that way, he actually stands quite apart from where there are a lot of public engagement is these days. You know, he saw democracy as a good thing. He saw partisan arguments as a good thing. And he was able to still be friends with people on the other side of politics. He valued that because he saw the arena as you get up and have these hard debates. But at the end of the day, you're all still citizens. You can hopefully still be larger than that. You can read poetry and have friends on the other side of the aisle. Um, whereas our narrow conception of politics today is often you're in camp A or you're in camp B and this is a fight to the death and, and every advantage must be gained. And, and I think he would really reject that and rejected those like the communists who, who kind of wanted to have society determined in that fashion. Yeah, I mean, this idea that you're free from domination of one one group or another is is essential, isn't it? And, and he saw communism as... Um, well, completely overturning our, our system of government, our way of life, um, the structures of society, which, which of course, is its its aspiration. I mean, they're quite quite overt about that. That's not subversive at all. And so it was banning something that was ultimately treasonous. Um, but, but again, as you say, he wasn't a classical liberal. He didn't profess to be a classical liberal. So um, it was it was about protecting a society that was operating for the good of society from the destruction of that society um, from another way of conceiving of it. Um, but but still, I mean, I think we were in the end saved from a distinctly a liberal <laughs> constitutional change and, and, and for the better. And that, of course, was the choice, very narrow choice of the Australian people. Andrew, I thought we'd end our discussion today just talking about how legacy – of civic republicanism is um, is is played out today. Is it important in Australian politics today, or or are we all just focused on each other and our own sort of little sectional interest? Um, there's there's a lot. You look as you were saying before that you look at the debates in Parliament, and there there's a lot of extreme language and brinkmanship and partisanship that that turns off. A lot of mainstream Australians who don't follow politics probably as closely as you and me. I think two debates around. I mean, the big, the big contemporary issue at the moment we'll be grappling with in terms of you know how do we conceive of ourselves as Australian and our and our governance system. Of course, is the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament um, that will be the subject of a referendum in the next year or or two. Uh, understand it will be in this mm. term of the federal government. How do we view these issues and and um, and others through the lens of contemporary civic republicanism? Thank you. Look, it's a great question, and I don't know that I would have kind of entirely classify myself in the civic republican tradition, but I certainly think it has ideas about a lot of questions that we've been talking about in our society. So, in you mentioned the uh, forthcoming referendum on a voice to parliament. A strict liberal might say, well, you know, do we actually need that? Is that going to change the material capacity of, of people? Whereas I think a, a civic Republican would, would say, well, A, the system should be evolving and adapting. It shouldn't be, it's, we're not trying to have kind of eternal principles, but also that the role of symbolism is really important. The spiritual health 
in a you know, non-denominational sense of a society is really important and that some problems can't just be solved with a check, with an organisation. They actually are about the society validating the role of members. And so I could see us, you know, civic Republicans saying there is an importance here, particularly given where these ideas have come from, you know, from our, our First Nations uh, Australians. And, and they've introduced that and therefore um, see the value of it as opposed to an elite um, just putting it down over the top. Another one that certainly is coming up is, you know, if we are concerned about Chinese aggression and the potential for conflict, uh, for even just challenges over supply chains and logistics in a more confrontational world, you know, as we see in response to Russia and Ukraine, that, well, that actually puts responsibilities on the citizens, that um, your contribution, your willingness to serve in our armed forces, to pay higher taxes, to accept some constraints, um, and the COVID lockdown is another example there, and that we do need a sense of, well, why are we doing these things? And is there a common acceptance of those responsibilities to it rather than, well, I just need to get as many of my rights as I can or why do I get restricted? Whereas, say, some of the wealthier seem to be able to escape our, some of our COVID um, barriers and, and quarantines early on in the system. And so I think that sense of contribution and that sense of, you know, how do we build resilience? A civic Republican model is quite adept to you know, these were ideas from very turbulent societies. You know, the early Romans, the Renaissance, Florence for Machiavelli, the English in the 16th and 17th century were societies that dealt with war and revolution and instability. And these were ideas for how to manage and preserve the public for it. Whereas more stable societies have found it easier to embrace kind of a more classical liberal system um, because you're not dealing with some of those um, security challenges. So, I think as the world gets more difficult, hopefully not entirely more dangerous, but certainly more difficult, that there is a great value in rethinking some of this. And my co-author, Benjamin Jones, has continued to publish and, and write quite a lot on this. Paul Pickering, Mark McKenna and others have, have put some, forward some of these ideas, even if we're not seeing a clear kind of third political camp uh, emerging that's not liberal or conservative uh, but Republican in this way. It, it seems like civic republicanism is a movement for troubled times, that we can all be sort of comfortable classical liberals or libertarians in the good times, but when the going gets tough, we all sort of have to club together and focus on that, that common good. I mean, as you say, with COVID lockdowns, I mean, you know, whether they, they worked or not or the negative consequences of them were worth the positive consequences of them as a debate for another day but that sort of sense that we're all going to be going through some restrictions but we're doing that to to help others to help the broader society these are elements of that public virtue civic virtue that um comes out in civic republicanism whereas you know when we're not in a time of pandemic a time of war uh, it's not the focus of our of our narrative is it of a of a of our discourse. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to put it. And um, one of the earlier papers I wrote around just before I did this one on Menzies was actually looking at the way the Bush administration thought about setting up a, a free society in Iraq. And, and I think part of the problem there was that they very much tried to take the ideas of, well, this is what works in America today yeah. and apply it to yeah. post Saddam Iraq. And they didn't set up the people to be free. They just thought you get government out of the way, you have a free society. Well, mm. I think Menzies would see the flaw in that. He'd say, no, no, you actually need to enable people to be free by giving them you know, basic materials, 
basic sense of security, basic sense of a community, and then they can be more free. Then they can contribute. And so particularly as life gets more challenging at times, and, that, and I think you, you phrased it really nicely there, then these ideas come back. So so hopefully, you know, we're able to, to draw a little bit on, on Menzies' experience, certainly someone who who's led our country through very difficult times. And we're now returning to some of that early Cold War history to see what we can learn and and I think he has a lot to teach us as well. Oh, he certainly does. And and just on that um, that kind of, uh, <laughs> I guess, the neoconservative agenda of regime change and, and importing democratic systems into countries that don't necessarily have that tradition. Um, I know Menzies wrote of Japan, post-war Japan, that he didn't think you could just automatically make it a democratic nation. Um, it didn't have those traditions. Of course, Japan is a flourishing democracy in 2022, but... In, in 1946, 47, 48, um, it, it, it didn't have those traditions. And of course, the constitution was drafted for Japan. But Menzies is very concerned that, that without those traditions that are native, are native to the country, you can't force those sentiments, um, and that way of decision making in a really kind of fictitious way. It has, it has to come from the people, uh, and our Westminster system, for example, was developed over over absolute centuries. So again, you know, when we come back to the the voice to Parliament, changing that once again, and and elevating one group over another for very important symbolic reasons, of course, um, is also diverging from centuries old traditions of of democracy building and and the way we we give people. As, as we have um, over the last hundred or so years, um, one vote is divergent. And, yeah, be interesting to think what would Menzies say about this next step in our democratic journey. Um, but Andrew, yeah, absolutely. No, look, thank you, because I, I hadn't read that about um, on views on Japan. And, I mean, just on your last point, like I, I do think he saw the world as, as evolutionary, that we, you yeah. know, we couldn't just be fixed on certain principles. It had to actually evolve with time and, and where the public was. You know, his views on the monarchy and other issues were often in line with where the other parts of the um, society were. We often attribute a lot of these views to Menzies because he was so dominant, um, but in a lot of ways he also reflected where the larger public were. So um, I, I think that sense of being a not progressive in the modern term, but pragmatic and, and evolving was very important to him. Yes, to see ourselves as part of continuity, um, that history is a progression, not you know, you're not just in a kind of a time loop. <laughs> um, is um, uh, well, it's I think um, one of the the beautiful things about our society is that we we can evolve and improve, and um, let's hope we always do improve and not regress. Um, but Andrew, it's been a, a fascinating conversation, uh, all about civic republicanism and Menzies, and I hope has injected another perspective into the debates about the. The Menzies legacy as it lives on today and, and how he crafted it through his time in office. So thank you very much for your time today on the Afternoon Light Podcast. Thank you very much for the chance to have a chat. The Afternoon Light Podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.